World of Work podcast with James and Jane. Hi everyone, this is Jane. And just before we get into this episode, I want to remind you of all the really great stuff on our website at www.worldofwork.io. Over there, you can check out all the online seminars and workshops we do, as well as our team development programs. You'll also find articles on topics to help you thrive at work. So that's www.worldofwork.io. Now let's get on to the episode. Hello, this is James. And this is Jane. And here we are again today with another episode of World of Work podcast. What are we speaking about today, Jane? Well, today we are talking to Jonathan Kaufman. Uh, He is a friend of the podcast from across the water in the US, and he is a contributor to Forbes, uh, and he is also a consultant. And we're going to be talking about the concept of dignity at work and dignified work. Yeah, that's right. We'll be exploring what it is that we get from our work, what it is that contributes to what we get from our work, and and overall, I guess, our relationship with work and and what it brings to our lives. So let's get into that conversation. Okay, so welcome to the main section of today's podcast conversation, and it's a topic we're really excited to speak about. So today we're going to be speaking about dignity in the workplace and kind of experiences of work, and how those experiences of, of work can translate into impacts on wider society and our communities and things like that. And we've got a great guest today. We're speaking to Jonathan Kaufman from New York. Before we get into that subject in a bit more detail, though, Jonathan, could you introduce yourself to the audience and maybe say a bit more about yourself and your background and the things you're working on at the moment? Sure. I mean, I think the way that I like to describe myself, or I've often been described, as the professional stranger. So my background professionally is as a psychotherapist, anthropologist, and generally a social scientist. And from that work, um, my, my sort of evolution um, began in terms of developing a consulting practice and a licensed psychotherapist and executive coach and consultant. So when I say professional stranger, I really am talking about the idea that I work with um, individuals, uh, corporations, educational institutions, governments, and I come in and solve problems. And that, that's essentially what I've done. Um, now, I think a lot of the work that I've done has always been around sort of the future of work or the element of work, and specifically in the diversity and inclusion world, but using disability as a lens. And so it's sort of given me a, a wide swath in terms of the tools that I use. And because of my background as a social scientist, um, it really provides me um, this sort of great toolkit that I have to essentially help people find solutions. That's excellent. And I I love the breadth of your experience. And um, I'm not sure we'll get onto it here, but I know you've done some really exciting bits of work as well. So some really interesting stuff in there that must have been fascinating to be part of. Um, So today we're really as I said in the intro, focusing on kind of dignity at work and what what that uh, leads to for people and, and teams and organizations and society and things like that. But I want to start off with some really, really basic points here. When we're speaking about a dignified experience and, and dignity at work, what exactly is it that we mean? You know, what does dignity at work mean to you? Well, I mean, if you look at sort of the history of the dignity of work, it really comes from the, the origins. The idea comes from Christian ethics. And the notion is that all work is of value, that the idea of being able to hold down a job is important. 
and it actually has value and meaning and it provides meaning both individually and collectively. And it is important to think when we talk about the idea of work that it is part of one's life, a big part of one's life that creates a sense of meaning and value. That's what is ostensibly means. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. And, and, you know, as you said, we spend so much of our times at work, right? I mean, I saw a number of the other day, 90,000 hours or something like that over a lifetime, there are variations in that, but it's a huge amount of time and, and how it affects us is important. So, if, if one has dignity in the workplace and has that dignity and, and, and really sort of uh, feels that one has it, how does that translate into your experience of work and, and the sort of emotional relationship that you have with your work? Well, I mean, I, I look at it in this way. I think about work that people bring two resumes to work. One resume, which is sort of the tasks and the tools that one has to Um, complete a task or do a specific job. The second resume that people bring to work is their emotional resume, which is their emotional life and how they deal with the sort of machinations of day-to-day life. How do people deal with the sort of interpersonal stuff? And that, that informs how we, one, perceive work, how we look at work, and how we interact with the people around us. And that, may, that plays a significant role in, one, the quality of work that one does within their sort of time frame, but how one engages in the process of work. So there is an emotional component, and then there's a sort of task-oriented component as well. And, and that, that is sort of changing the way we look at work. I mean, one of the things that's always interesting, because we can sort of look at the, sort of this generation, you know, millennials and the idea yeah. of work, because that that's constantly changing. So the average time a person is in a job is 18 months. That's yeah. no longer the case of sort of the traditional model of you go to work and you're there for 30, 40 years and you get a gold watch when you retire. That's gone the way of the dodo. You know, now um, certainly the culture of work is, has changed, which then changes the value of work. And in essence, we're sort of going into a, a sort of a new realm. And it's always interesting. I'm always fond of uh, Reed Hoffman, who was one of the co-founders. Yeah. In, and he wrote a book called The Alliance. And essentially saying that the culture of work is changing completely. And that rather than being a top-down approach, that in essence, you enter a relationship and an alliance, which is sort of, um, which is, goes back and forth in terms of that relationship. It's not top down, it's streamlined. So what value do you bring to the table and what value can they offer? Yeah. And that conversation changes um, and the power structure changes, which then sort of informs the question about the dignity of work and how people value work. And that, I think, is going to be changing even more so. I think one of the silver linings as we sort of, I think, and yes, there is there is light at the end of the tunnel with, with the new vaccines, but one of the silver linings of COVID is the fact that we now recognize that this notion of decentralized work, 
of virtual work, which was already exist, which was already in existence at this point. But the fact is that people now have relied on it to work is now going to change. Well, how do we view work and what is it that we want um, in terms of just being able to say, okay, what is important to me? What is important to my family? And the process of how one goes about work um, in a decentralized world, in a virtual economy. There's some fascinating stuff in there. And, and I think that, that point around um, the sort of changing power dynamics between the individual and the organization or, or the increased willingness, at least in uh, our interpretation of individuals, to voice their opinions of what they want and what's important to them. And, and the way that what is important changes every generation and the society evolves is, is fascinating. And, and I, I, the sense I get is that, that getting dignity from your work is increasingly important, particularly if we look at millennials and, and within that cohort of people in the workplace, we, we see more value on things like individuality, identity, on things like um, self-determination, on authenticity and all those types of things, which is great. Um, and and I guess if we if we think about people who maybe are in roles where they don't, don't feel that they are dignified or, or don't feel that they get some of those things. What does that feel like? Or what are the impacts of being in a job in which you do not feel that you are, are uh, entitled to dignity, I guess? Well, I mean, look, I can draw from my own practice. I mean, one of the mm-hmm. things I work with, obviously, as a psychotherapist and an executive coach is working with people who are absolutely flustered by the work that they do um, and, and in many ways, in many cases, unhappy. Um, and so it really impacts one's, not only their sort of social life, but their whole demeanor, their, their sort of, their behavior in terms of how they live their life outside of their job. I mean, yeah. I think that it, it, people begin to sort of meander and look for meaning and are looking for value. And it's almost as if they're in the state of inertia where they're lost and saying, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling good about what myself, I'm not feeling good about my job, which is sort of, and, and there's, as someone pointed out to me actually yesterday, because they were unhappy with their career path, they said, there's sort of just a general malaise that I feel I'm going nowhere. I can't, I'm, I'm rudderless. I can't yeah. find my way. And it's finding that way that's so important that I think that people need that meaning, that, you know, that, that sort of value that is important and purpose. Yeah. Use that idea. Purpose is so critical. So when people don't have purpose in their job and the job can be mundane, you know, it doesn't have to be something highfalutin. It doesn't have to be a white collar job, but, but purpose is so important and, and, and value. Yeah. And, and, um, I'm going to do a little bit of swearing here. Um, I don't know if you've read uh, David Graeber's pieces on bullshit jobs um, yeah. and the fact that there are these jobs and, and we can have jobs that are highfalutin, high paid, a professional, in some ways socially esteemed, but in some ways sort of socially or, or individually meaningless at the same time. And, and those jobs don't give individuals the dignity of true purpose to some extent. Do you feel that there are um, more... 
sort of propensity of certain job types to be uh, imbued with dignity or, or if there are certain fields where you're less likely to have a, a more dignified experience in work? Or do you think it's a product of culture and individual and um, those type of factors? I, I think it's, I think it's the, 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 the latter. I think it's dependent upon the person and I think it's dependent upon the culture. Yet, um, a, the fact that you get a paycheck is important yeah. because yeah. out of that, it's okay. This is, you know, it's almost, this is, this is, you know, the idea of, if you go back to sort of traditional cultures, the idea of potlatch and the notion of this, you get something for something is for some, for, for something else in terms of you are producing something, you are, you are providing something regardless of whatever it is. You could be, a garbage man, you could be a secretary, you are giving of yourself and you are receiving yeah. something of value. So regardless of the fact, if you like your job or you're sat, you have some sort of job satisfaction element, um, there is the element of one, I'm receiving money that I can provide for my family. I can provide for a basic lifestyle that, that in essence is the foundation Anything after that becomes something more. And we can sort of look at sort of larger existential questions. But yeah. The foundation of any work is, you know, you provide value or you do a task and you receive compensation for it. That, that, yeah. That's the foundation. And, and do you sort of equate this or do you see any parallels with... Um, dignity at work and uh, models of uh, perhaps motivation, maybe things like Maslow or anything like that, where you start with the basics and that gives you some dignity and you work your way up towards those more yeah, I mean, uh, actualization. Absolutely. You can sort of draw from Abraham Maslow with everything. I mean, mm. it, it almost is sort of the idea of origin. And I would sort of add Peter Drucker, you know, yeah. is that in the notion of, of management practice in the idea of saying, okay, he, you know, Drucker wrote a wonderful book. It's sort of a, a small little book called you know, The Management of Oneself. And it's, he sort of talks about the idea of, of okay, what will the knowledge economy look like? Um, you know, he was sort of thinking about the future and, and thinking about, okay, what, what's not important as much about the sort of technological advances, but how one thinks about the world of work and and human beings' relationship to work. Yeah. That's going to be sort of the critical piece. And I always think that that's going to be the critical piece going forward. I think that there's a big, I mean, we, we see this now. Um, mm -hmm. And particularly in, and I don't want to sort of get too political, but in the sort of one of the things of populism, which has been yeah. so interesting, is that there has been this sort of great fear of automation the yeah. great fear that you know th that industries such as you know particularly here in the united states like coal is going to go yeah. away. things like the sort of the, the car industry oil but there's always something else to supersede that or come later and it's a question of okay well, people have to get used to the fact that the vestiges of the past, that the work product of the past is going to evolve eventually. Um, the fact that we are now in a sort of more decentralized world than we've had to be because of COVID, for example, is now people are wondering, so what is the world, what, what's the world of work going to look like? 
Is there going to be office space? Is that needed? So there there are all of these interesting questions that are happening. Um, But the idea of human interaction is so critical um, to the basic world of work. Um, But it it also evolves in terms of understanding, okay, when we think about the dignity of work and what is of value, the premise is still the same. And what, I mean, and this has sort of been bolstered by the idea of, um, you know, the World Economic, both the World Economic Forum and the Business Roundtable, the Business Roundtable mm. here in the United States, which is an organization of CEOs of Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies, and obviously the World Economic Forum, which is sort of a cross section of business and politics um, and global issues. They both, independently of each other, within within 2018 and 2019, said, you know what, the idea of a a definition of a corporation has to change. And we have to go beyond the idea of the economist. um, You know, I went to the University of Chicago, so Milton... (laughs) Okay, yes. ...was was considered... I'm actually wearing a University of Chicago sweatshirt. Um, Nice. you know, Milton Friedman was considered God there. Yeah. The idea of shareholder value, and that was the definition of a, of a corporation. Both organizations said no. That yeah. part of the evolution of the, of, the, of the definition of a corporation is about how we broaden the definition of work. How do we broaden the definition of what a corporation means to one's quality of life? and value in terms of both society, both individually from a diversity and inclusion standpoint, and what value it provides as far as an evolutionary aspect in terms of work itself. So it's now, both of these organizations have fostered upon, you know, companies to say, well, let's actually do an audit of your culture. What, what, what does it mean? And each company is now having to rethink, what are we doing? What are we yeah. offering our employees? What are we offering ourselves? What, how do we almost in many ways redefine our vision of what yeah. can be? Yeah. You know, there, there's so much in there. And, and just a couple of points I wanted to touch on is uh, are as follows. So I guess one of the points you, you mentioned at the beginning there was our sort of fear of loss of roles and, and that, that, you know, focus on, say, the coal industry at the minute and that, that fear of loss of roles. And if we go back to the start of the 20th century, we have people like Keynes um, postulating that we would have leisure time, right, which is a corollary to a loss of roles. One way to see it is a negative fear. The other is leisure time because of balance across the world. So I think that's an interesting piece in there. And, and I think some of that is down to our definition of the purpose of work in itself, which is one of these things that's evolving. Um, and another thing that, that we talked about, uh, that you touched on, was the ability of humanity to create new sources of work. And, and I think we have shown throughout the entirety of our history that we are always doing that. And, and really, if we think about work as a way to perform a function in return for value that, or perform a function that generates value, in many ways, we are the only arbiters of what that value is. So we as individuals, define that value in ourselves. And, and in doing that, that means that there will always be work because everybody will have wants or desires or needs that at some point can be met through through the things that others others do, um, in, in my view. So I think that uh, evolution of work and, and that shifting towards more purpose-oriented uh, work, which you called up, 
with a business round table and world economic forum is, is fascinating. And then we're, um, from our perspective, we're, we're heavily interested in organizational impact, organizational responsibility and all those things with dignity in work and, and that real human experience and that, that, um, you know, that experience of work and lived experience through work that people can generate being one of a core outputs of responsibility and, and responsible impact. Um, do, do you think that, I guess two things, do you think there's a relationship between uh, dignity in the workplace and inclusion? And, and do you think that, um, that having dignity in the workplace uh, leads to things like increased health or well-being for employees? Yes. I mean, I think, you know, when you sort of look at the issues of diversity and inclusion, the basic premise is sort of the, 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 the we have to celebrate difference because in, in having different perspectives, different points of view, different ways of thinking, essentially, is better for business in the long run. It creates um, an evolution in terms of how we approach the, the, the very processes of business, whether it be from management practice to the development of products and services. So on both sides of the business, um, it, is, it is essential. But in terms of creating a better quality of life, in terms of health and well-being, it absolutely does. Because one, um, organizationally, they have, to, they have to be aware of what is needed in terms of the day-to-day of focus on work productivity. How do we get the best out of our employees? How do we mine talent? How do we figure out in terms of the basic evolution, in terms of creating new products and services, new revenue streams? And if we don't um, embrace diversity and inclusion, then we sort of lose out on a competitive advantage. That being said, you know, at least in terms of my my work in terms of corporate health and wellness, which is a big part of my professional life these days, um, one of the most important things is to understand um, because there is a power dynamic shift in terms of companies in that employees are leaving at a faster rate, um, they want to see, okay, because one of the questions that employees ask is, what can you do for me? It's not what I can do for you from the, the sort of corporate side, but what you can do for me. And one of the big elements and sort of the draws for companies is, okay, here's how we can create a quality of life for you. And I go back to the idea that I looked, that I talked about before. When we come to work, we come with the two resumes. And now people in talent management and HR and DNI, diversity and inclusion, are thinking, okay, let's look at that second resume. And what do we have to look in terms of the emotional life of a potential employee and what draws them in? And what draws them in is creating an ecosystem where health and wellness is such an important part because we want them to work longer. We want them to be part of a community, not just a workforce. And being part of a community is so much more, it's it's so much richer in terms of the fabric of of an organizational structure than saying, okay, well, you're you're just part of a company. And do you think 
So there's uh, there's some, been some stuff around the whole wellness at work and well-being at work recently that says, you know, on the one hand, yes, it's brilliant and it's great if you feel really engaged and part of a community. But on the other hand, there are lots of people who would like to have stronger boundaries between their work and their uh, personal life and would like to kind of, they feel like through things like engagement and tribal working and things like that, that it kind of encroaches into their life. So mm-hmm. do you do you see that as a challenge for some people who just want to be able to do the hours they do, stay at work, do it well, and then completely shut down and, and move away? Yeah, I mean, look, I think part of the problem is, is that essentially now with technology and, and sort of mobile workforce is that you, <clears throat> I'm sort of holding my cell phone in my hand and essentially you could do everything <laughs> on your cell phone. You're never you're never away from work because work essentially goes in your pocket, you know, and that's always the problem. But I do think what is important for anybody, and I talk about this in my, in my private practice all the time is accountability. You know, you have to have agency and autonomy in terms of saying, okay, I need to be accountable for myself. And when is the point when you set healthy boundaries? Uh, Well, no, a company can't do that for you in the sense that, um, it is important that you, the individual speaking, has full autonomy in terms of being able to create healthy boundaries. That, from my vantage point, is so important. And one has to sort of take control of what they need. And, and they're, they're the only ones really that can, well, when, I, when I mean by they, individual employees can be really are the final arbiters in terms of what their needs are. That, from my vantage point, is so important. So one of the things that I work on um, in my own practice is creating healthy boundaries and being able to separate out work life from sort of work life work life balance essentially and work life from home life. And one of the key things is not about time management, um, but, you know, the professor um, at uh, the University of Pennsylvania Warden School of Business talks about the idea of attention management and rather than time management. And so where, where does one place their attention on? What's that focal point? So um, it's important to think about it from this, the standpoint of, how do we focus on what our needs are and are we getting our needs met? That's essential in terms of health and wellness. And I think that will be useful for everybody. Yeah, it's interesting. In in the UK, we get stuck a little bit between European and US working cultures. And mm-hmm. um, one of the ones that cropped up recently was very much some of the stuff you were talking about, about always on culture. And uh, we kind of got stuck between the some recent moves in France to try and regulate the amount of time that people can work by regulating whether they have to take a cell phone home um they're doing things around turning off servers to force uh force sort of maximum working times and i think there's something really interesting about what you say about whose responsibility is it um james and i often talk about like whose responsibility is it for the well-being of your employees and it we kind of come down on the place, well, it's a bit the employee, a bit the organization and a bit the society and the rules that we operate in. And I guess um, that makes lots of sense for people who are 
relatively well skilled and in demand. But I'd be really interested to know your thoughts about those. Um, we talk sometimes about those left behind. Uh, yeah. And I'd be really interested to know, like, for those working in jobs where they often are the, I guess, have the least skills and therefore are the most easy or generally the most easy to recruit and replace, what the role is of, of trying to improve their dignity at work. Right now, it's a quandary because it's it's not something that people who sort of, when you look at that group of people that are sort of, I guess, not, or at least the awareness factor is not there in terms of, and the, the sort of ability to be more, to be replaceable, um, because the focus is on, okay, I need to keep my job, I need to keep earning a living because I'm doing this for myself, my family, others. So the priority set is different rather than saying, okay, this is about quality of life. This is about creating um, satis- job satisfaction. That's not something that sort of enters the lexicon as much um, as others who are sort of in more white collar type jobs. But I do think it is important to talk to those communities about the idea of, one, the dignity of work, coupled with the idea of health and wellness. What does that mean in terms of your quality of life? And while we understand there is a need to work, what does that look like for you? So one, you can continue to produce, but two, the burnout rate. Um, is, you know, that has to be certainly checked and meaning, you know, again, value, you know, there's a surface value, which is, okay, I'm doing this because I have to, I have to provide for my family. I have to provide, um, you know, sort of continually be the, in many ways, the primary breadwinner, so on and so forth. But how does one begin to rethink the world of work, particularly as it's changing. And I think also in many cases, particularly for this community, it's sort of thinking about, okay, they see the world of work changing very quickly. And I think there, in, in many ways, there's always been this sense of underlying fear. So how do you begin to sort of quell that and say, well, let's reevaluate what you need? Because I think doing, as I said before, it's almost like an audit of, of doing a needs assessment. When you evaluate somebody who's in that echelon of work, it is really important to at least figure out what is their actual need. And then being able to do that, you can begin to say, well, let's create almost as if a sort of a, a an idea of meaning for you in terms of what work is in your life. From there, then you can be able to think about at least helping the, particularly those individuals or those groups to say, well, let's almost map it out in sort of a life in a way where you can say, one, here's the value of work. Here's the value of family. Here's the value of individual agency. Um, so there's sort of those three elements, and that often doesn't get, it's not something that's really talked about a lot. And 
it's not talked about because the focus is on, okay, I need to do my job because this is all about earning, you know, money to survive. You know, there's a survival instinct sort of takes over rather than breaking it down and saying, well, wait a minute, work is a component of my life. It is not the primary component of my life, but it should be a part of a larger um, component, you know, because there are there are other pieces that make up my life and that often doesn't get discussed. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point about that, the idea that there are other parts of life. And I guess I'm quite interested about the idea of crossover and, and how... I guess how, when you can uh, have a sense of dignity at work, how that spills over uh, and how it might sort of impact the other people in your life. Because I think one of the things that we see quite a lot and we talk about is how, as much as we'd love to sort of put our boundaries so tightly up that work exists in a microcosm Mm -hmm. um, or in a little, little pod, actually all the people around us experience it too. So um, what's your thoughts on that and, and sort of the wider impact on society? James and I often talk about like, you know, when we can make improvements at work for people's experience, hopefully mm-hmm. that'll have a wider impact on our communities. Is that something that you think is particularly true with something like dignity? Yeah, I absolutely do. And when you sort of go back to the World Economic Forum and the Business Roundtable, that that's one of the focal points of saying the definition of a corporation has an enormous impact on society in general, and also what's the role of a corporation in society? You know, and so if if this is the sort of thought process that's going on with major organizations that represent very large companies um, to sort of mid-sized companies, then this is something we all have to take notice of. And we all have to sort of begin to refocus and reformulate how we think about the nature of social impact. Um, And, you know, look, there's a whole element of companies, you know, which are B Corps, which are focused on sort of the social impact of, of communities and the social impact of society in general. And it is critically important to say the work that you do, because you are at work so often, you know, it's, it's a big part of one's life, that it isn't just about shareholder value. It isn't just about goods and services, but rather, what is it that we can do? You know, what's fascinating about, or, uh, you know, cultures like Silicon Valley, for example, you know, these are companies that stem from the idea that we're here to change the world the whole ethos is about that disrupt 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 right disrupt what a toxic phrase and the and beyond that is how do we change the world how do we change the world how do we change the culture in which we live how do we change our environment in so many different ways so that idea is being adopted on so many levels. Um, and then, you know, look, there are shows, you know, that sort of espouse that. I, I think, you know, it, there's one show here in the United States called Shark Tank, and it's I think it's called Dragon's Den. Dragon's Den, yeah, it's Dragon's Den here. Right. In the UK, it's Dragon's Den. Same idea. So it's the notion of entrepreneurship and the idea of saying, okay, 
Well, and you sort of, and what's interesting about both of those shows, because they're identical, it's a different title, but identical shows, is the idea that it isn't just about the goods and services that, you know, these investors are sort of coming to invest, but they're investing in the stories. They're investing in the idea that people want to change, one, their families' lives individually, the individual entrepreneurs, but also society at large. And and then they're, you know, what you were seeing is over and over again, companies that, okay, it's about giving back, you know, like yeah. choose, for example. And you, you could see it, it's sort of, there's a litany of companies like that. So the social value has become more important because it goes back to the definition of what are we all about and the yeah. larger existential question. Yeah. And fundamentally, we are social beings and, and so much of what we do comes back to that social positioning and social purpose. Um, and so it's, it's great that you mentioned B Corporations. We've um, we've done some podcasts with um, a few people who are involved in B Corporations. One of them's involved in B Labs in the UK, one of our sort of governing bodies. And we're actually, uh, the, you know, as a company, Jen and I work together and we're something in the UK called a community interest company, which isn't a B Corporation, but it's... Um, legally structured in such a way that it's uh, essential for us to work towards achieving a specific purpose and our funds are ring fenced to make sure that we can only do that and and we do that because of our personal quest for purpose and value and what we do and, and an ability to to try and create more dignity in the work that we do and more satisfaction for ourselves and to feel part of that that wider um ability to impact society um so i guess a couple questions if we move on to some things that individuals or, or people in organizations can do to maybe shift some of the dignity um, that they have. We, we've talked about stuff tangentially as we've gone through, mm-hmm. but I guess if somebody was an individual in a job at, at the moment who wanted to create more dignity in their role themselves, is there anything that they could do? Well, I, yeah, I, I think one of the things that they have to look at is, you know, ask themselves the question, um, what is it that I want? What are my goals? Because I think it's really important to think about, you know, I always think of Andy Grove, you know, the sort of co-founder of Intel. And he came up with this sort of management practice called OKRs. OKRs are are objectives and key results. And the notion is that, one, we have to think about what are my objectives? And I think it's really important. I don't think people think about it enough. And I actually use the model because the model was really designed for a larger practice, but I've been using it actually now for individuals and particularly in their workplace. And one one of the things that I found in the process of doing this um, exercise is that people have never really sat back and said, okay, what are my objectives in my work? What, you know, it isn't just about the task at hand but the sort of larger question so that I feel a sense of satisfaction, that I feel healthy in terms of the work I'm doing. I feel confident in the work I'm doing. And, and God forbid, I feel happy in the work I'm doing. And it's important that people begin to think, what are the objectives? And it, and it isn't just about the tasks of the job, but it's about where I am in the arc of my career. And then it's thinking of going beyond those objectives and saying, because the key results is really the question of how, how do I get there? So it's creating a blueprint for oneself. And it's really important for that people begin to think about that one, they have autonomy two 
that this practice needs to be part of their daily lives. Yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. And I, and I think a, a key message for me is that something that you said earlier is that different people are in different places with different needs. So there isn't a right answer. And yeah. as you said, for some people, work is part of their lives and they want the paycheck and to invest their energy outside. Um, but for others, they want purpose through their work. And, and whatever the answer is, that's okay. It's just making sure that it's the right answer for you, given your circumstances. And right. Like there's, no, there's no one size fits all. It just yeah. work that way. So we yeah. have to remember that. And and what about if maybe you were leading a small team? So a lot of our, our listeners lead, um, you know, smaller teams and organizations. Is there anything that you could do as a leader of a team that would help um, create more of a dignity experience for the people working for you in an organization? The three words and the same words, communicate, communicate, communicate. If you're, right. Okay. If you're not communicating with your team, you sort of lose out. Now, how is that done? I think it's important to begin by, you know, at least getting people together. And, and you know, in many ways, it's actually a lot easier to do it in social situations. I mean, and in this time, in this sort of time of COVID, it's a, it's a lot harder. Um, but people are doing sort of Zoom happy hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that it is important that people interact and connect because it's also, you know, in many ways, it's for team leaders and doing team trainings, it's sort of beginning by asking a question, sort of putting a question out there and, yeah. and thinking about what people respond. You know, it isn't about just work. It's more a matter of how do individuals connect to each other on just a basic social level. Yeah. That stuff's so powerful. I, I remember reading um, Edgar Schein's Humble Inquiry, and, and it talks about mm -hmm. you know, the importance of going out for dinner before you do anything, right? I, that kind of things. How do you build those connections? And Right. I mean, we are, as you pointed out, we are social beings, and it's so important just to connect on a basic level. And it isn't about work. It's about developing and cultivating relationships. Relationships are at the core of anything. My grandfather who owned a business for 55 years. He always used to say, business is about people. And that's all you need to know. If you understand people, you'll do much, you'll be much more successful long term. And you I know what? remember that's so funny. Sorry, I was just going to jump in. Um, my my grandfather ran a, a business. He did like sort of American drugstores in the 50s and, and 40s and 50s and 60s and so on. And one of the things he used to say was that um, if you didn't know your people well enough to know their kids' birthdays and remember their wife's name, then your business was too big. Yeah. And so same kind of message, right? I mean, it's, yeah, it's all about the people. It, it, it is a very different message. And, and you know, and and it, so it's, it's fascinating that that was such a core that was at his core and so important for him to know who his customers were, to know who his salespeople were and to know about their lives. And he had people live, working inside and outside the country, but to understand the idea of people's wants and needs and desires were so important because that would have given him the ability to grow and to evolve. And I think for whether you're a, a, an individual, a small team, a larger company, it's understanding the value of individuals and the value that they provide to your organization and vice versa. 
Yeah. And through those connections with them, that in itself gives them dignity, that, that being seen and recognized by you and included in, in your relationship as a valid person provides dignity as well, I believe. Yep. Absolutely. Great. Okay. Well, I think um, we are running out of time, so I'm going to start to wrap things up. I thought that was um, full of great content. So thank you. Um, just before we finish up though, Jonathan, is there any way that people can learn more about you or read some of your work or maybe even get in touch? Sure. I mean, I have a website, which is www.jkaufmanconsulting. And then I write a regular column for Forbes called Mindset Matters, which is part of their leadership and their diversity and inclusion sections. And it's usually I have, it comes out weekly, but it's a regular column because sometimes I write more. Um, so that is something that I'm, I can sort of continually do. And that seems to be um, where people know about me most. Um, but, you know, my work is I do consulting and I do coaching and, you know, I'm always open to see if my goal is to focus on people's needs and finding better solutions. So that's the goal. That's always been the goal. That sounds great. Okay. Well, we will share those details when we uh, put the podcast out and we'll, we'll be um, retweeting some of your Mindset matter stuff. I know you, you tweet about it and write about it on LinkedIn sometimes as well. So we'll be sharing those um, over the coming months as well. So it's just time for me to, see, uh, to say thank you very much. So it's a thank you from me. And from me. Thank you very much. I really appreciate this. Okay, so that was our conversation with Jonathan Kaufman, and you are back in the conversation with Jane and myself. Um, Jane, did you have any points you wanted to reflect on from that conversation or specific things to call out? Well, aside from the fact that I need to go and put my head in the fridge, because I feel like we covered so much in so many ways that uh, it's given me a lot to think about, the, I guess the thing that really struck me was just that, well, that, that, that so many times in that conversation, the concept that we were talking about overlapped or crossed paths with other things we've talked about and other theories and sections of organizational psychology and organizational development so for example he was talking um i thought really eloquently about this idea of people helping people construct purpose um out of their work even if it's potentially lower skilled or lower paid or both um and i just think back to when we've talked about job crafting in the past and i know we're going to be talking about it again when we think about that idea of crafting psychologically what that job is and what it means such that you understand and can connect with the purpose more um and i think for me that's that's something there's something really interesting about talking to someone who views uh organizations and work differently and through a different lens, like he does through, you know, sort of a different approach. And thinking of trying to unpick how that sort of relates to some of the stuff that we know can help improve people's experience of work. And I guess really just asking, I guess it makes me ask, is dignity at work just well, uh, well-planned, appropriately resourced, work where you recognize that it has a purpose yeah that's a good question and, and i think there's some some good reflection um in there i guess one of the things that i'd call out i'd say builds a little bit on on what you're talking about there and one of the things that really stood out from that conversation for me is the fact that as humans we are the bringers and the determiners of what is valuable in what we do so when we're thinking about dignity and work and what we get from work to some extent we create 
all these things that define what dignity is for us. Um, and I think that's an, an extra layer that I'd add to, to the points that you were speaking about there about what uh, what dignity is. And for me, that's that sort of social connection and, and what we create as value collectively um, and what we think is important collectively. And I, and I think that human connection is really important there. Um, I think as well that overall that humanity is, is really powerful so that we can improve our dignity by connecting with each other, by having our relationships with others, by being valued and seen by others. And I think that's an important point. Um, to bear in mind in all of us. So if there's something that you know you can do as an individual to help improve dignity at work, it's it's really seeing people um, and recognizing them and appreciating them and, and valuing them as people. And that I think is a, is a powerful contributor to dignity in the workplace. Um, so I think that's probably it from us. So I think it's just time to say goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Hi everyone, this is James. Uh, thank you very much for listening to that podcast and please do share it and review it if you enjoyed it. And don't forget, you can learn more about our coaching, workshops, courses, and development programs on our website. That's www.worldofwork.io. Again, www.worldofwork.io.